0: Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you? Get in touch with technology with Tech Stuff from
1: HowStuffWorks.com.
0: Hello again, everyone, and welcome to Tech Stuff. My name is Chris Paulette, and I am an editor at HowStuffWorks.com. Sitting across from me, as he typically does on days like this, not rainy ones, but the days we do the podcast, although today is both, senior writer Jonathan Strickland.
1: Of Herbert West, who was my friend in college and in afterlife, I can speak only with extreme terror. Ooh, that's a good one to start today. Yes. Today we wanted to talk about a subject that is uh, is pretty terrifying. We're talking about nuclear weapons.
0: Yes, yes.
1: Nuclear, uh, not
0: nuclear. <laughs> he was, I, I was teasing him about this before, and he said that I had better not. So I'm, I'm yes. not going to say nuclear. I mean, uh, other than just then. Um and one of the reasons I wanted to uh to talk about this today is because it's been in the news a lot lately. Um of course uh Iran um is rumored or depending on whom you ask, more than rumored to be working on a nuclear weapons program. Yep. And um, you know, that that's been a a, a busy top I was about to say a hot topic, let's not go there. Um lately. And I thought, well, you know, why don't we we've never really talked about um the technology that makes nuclear weapons Possible, yeah. Um, And while I'm not particularly fond of things that cause death and destruction, uh, the the actual bombs themselves, how they make them work, is kind of interesting.
1: And it's it's important stuff. I mean, you know, there's a lot there are a lot of discussions about uh, nuclear arms races. You know, we had a a famous nuclear arms race between the Soviet Union and the United States during the Cold War, right? Which. Started to look like things were going to to improve, where you know both nations were starting to dismantle a lot of their nuclear weapon programs, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but then you've got other countries uh, like China and India and Pakistan and uh, other countries that are that have either have a nuclear weapons program or are developing it. North Korea is another good example. Mm-hmm. Uh, they either have a an, a fully fledged out nuclear weapons program or they're working on it mm-hmm. and uh it adds a lot of concern because these weapons potentially pack an enormous punch and it's the kind of weapon that you know most weapons you use them and then the uh that immediate moment the aftermath you know that's that's all you're dealing with and the right. aftermath is generally you know not not uh, something that is perpetual, right? I mean, mm-hmm. I mean, you might have to do some massive cleanup or whatever, but that's it. Nuclear weapons are different in that the aftermath can be as destructive, or maybe not as destructive, but but destructive on their own uh, beyond the initial blast. Right. And so, plus plus, it's possible
0: that the uh, uh the effects of the nuclear blast can carry uh, across. The terrain to places that the, uh, as, as we'll find out in, in our discussion, um, that, uh, People may not necessarily have been planning on being affected.
1: Yeah, you might, Um, you know. It's not just the immediate area necessarily. It's not a precision weapon in that, uh, yeah, there's a precision blast area that you're, that you can be pretty sure is going to be vaporized when you hit it. Right. But then there's a a large area around that, depending upon the climate and, you know, the specific weather conditions at that time, it could affect. Neighboring countries, you know, pe- essentially innocent bystanders to mm-hmm. whatever it is. Sure. So let's get into this. Let's talk first about atoms.
0: Yeah, I mean, you think about it. The, one of the fascinating things about this is that such mm-hmm. a devastating reaction can be caused by something as tiny as an atom.
1: Yeah, uh, and just so that we all have our little uh, our little refresher course, even though I'm sure no one listening needs it. Your basic atom. Uh, has a nucleus uh, that is orbited by electrons. Now, your electrons are your negatively charged particles. Yes. Your nucleus typically contains at least one proton. Actually, it has to. Otherwise, it's not an atom. Good point. So the proton is a positively charged particle, and the proton's positive charge and the electron's negative charge are attracted to one another. Mm -hmm. It's pretty powerful. Now, there can also be in that nucleus a... A, 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 a particle that carries no charge at all. A neutron. Right. Which has no charge. And neutrons kind of act like glue for protons because, you know, you've got this, this uh, nucleus that could have more than one proton. Well, the problem is that similar charges repel one another. Mm-hmm. So if you have two positively charged particles and you try and put them close to each other, they're going to start repelling each other. Well, neutrons kind of act like a, a glue that That allows these protons to group together uh, to form this nucleus.
0: Mm -hmm, mm
1: -hmm. So, uh, if you. I'm getting out of here. No, 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 it's all right. It's all right. Okay. That's okay. Now, you can change the number of neutrons that are within an atom. Mm -hmm. And if you do that, uh, the, you know, atoms have, typically they have a, a, a number of neutrons that you will naturally find within the atoms of that element. Right. Uh, if you find something that's outside of that, that either is, uh, got, either has more or fewer neutrons, it's an isotope. Right. So isotopes of atoms are atoms that contain a different number of neutrons than you would typically find them in nature. Right. Plus, whereas, I think the
0: isotopes are a baseball team in Springfield.
1: That's also true. Uh, now, this is not to be confused with ions. Right. An ion is an atom that has either gained or lost an electron, and so it e- either has a positive charge or a negative charge uh, because of that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, of course, if it's gained an electron, then overall the atom has a negative charge. If it's lost an electron, then overall the atom has a positive charge. So that's the difference between ions and isotopes. Now, isotopes really, that's what ends up being important in these nuclear weapons it's it's sort of a key feature mm-hmm. um,
0: another thing that's that's important to note is that for the most part atoms are pretty stable yes i mean once you get them in their natural state they're unlikely to change all that much they don't uh, randomly shed electrons or things unless some force acts on them they just sort of go along there about their business and Stick to themselves. Right. Because if, if they were <laughs>
1: no. if they were unstable, they would very they would not necessarily very quickly, but if they were unstable, they would change to become more stable. Right. Over time. That's what we call decay. Mm-hmm. So if you have an atom that is unstable, it will eventually change to a more stable form. And in the process of that, it's going to give up some energy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, it can give up energy in, in multiple ways. There's actually Three main types of radioactive decay. That's right. Uh, there's alpha decay, which is where you've got your nucleus and it. it's going to kick out two protons and two neutrons bound together, which is also called an alpha particle. Then you've got beta decay, mm-hmm. and this is where a neutron actually changes becomes a proton. Uh, then uh, the neutron or the proton and the uh, an electron and an anti. Uh anti neutrino are all ejected together. That's the beta particle. Or mm. actually the ejected electron is the beta particle specifically. Right. Um so you yeah, good old anti neutrinos. I tell you, They they go opposite the fast as the speed of light. <laughs> so we talked about the whole neutrinos, whether or not they were going faster than the speed of light with large hadron collider. Right now it looks like they didn't. Looks like that was all due to uh some some uh issues with the measuring technology.
0: Yeah, looking at the scoreboard today.
1: Right. Which could change by the time this podcast goes out. So the third type is spontaneous fission. Mm-hmm. Now fission is where you have a nucleus split into two pieces. Yes. It's um, the the opposite of fusion. Fusion is where two nucleuses come together and join. And in both fission and fusion you have a release of energy. Mm-hmm. Now for radioactive decay we're specifically talking about fission not fusion. Right. So in this, the nucleus splits and it might eject neutrons, uh, which can become neutron rays. And it also can emit electromagnetic energy called gamma rays, which do not talk about Fantastic Four. I wasn't. You're looking at me like I was talking about some or the Hulk. I I was waiting for you to make that joke. Uh, Actually, I think it was cosmic rays for the Fantastic Four, yeah, and gamma radiation for the Incredible Hulk. Yeah, you know. I don't want to get my science wrong.
0: <laughs> You're absolutely scientific.
1: My air quotes science, science. wrong. Uh, so yeah, gamma rays. Uh, it's interesting that they are the only type of nuclear radiation that comes from energy rather than particles.
0: Yes. All right? I bet you learned that on HowStuffWorks.com. Yes. There's, there's a really good article about that.
1: We, we, have, we have a couple of articles on HowStuffWorks.com that are going to be really useful as we talk about this. Mm-hmm. They include how nuclear weapons work, yep. how, nuclear, uh, how nuclear radiation works. Yes. And also how uh, – there's an article about the Manhattan Project. We'll talk about the Manhattan Project in a little bit. Yeah. So we've now got these three different forms of radioactive decay, and we know about this, nu- this spontaneous fission. Well, what's interesting is that the fission doesn't necessarily have to be spontaneous. If you find the right kind of unstable atom and you are able to bombard it with neutrons, mm-hmm. then sometimes those atoms will accept a neutron – and in the process, they will become so unstable as uh, that the nucleus itself will split apart. Mm-hmm. And in that process, the nucleus will release energy. It also may release other neutrons, which means that if you get a bunch of these unstable atoms together and you shoot a neutron at them, and then that first ad- that first nucleus splits apart and more neutrons split off of it, it can cause more. Of these unstable atoms to do the same thing, and that's where you have a chain reaction.
0: Mm-hmm. I can't remember who it was that had that uh, the TV show where they had a, a a clear plastic box, and on the bottom of the box they had uh, mouse traps, and, and each mouse traps balls. each mouse trap had two ping pong balls mm-hmm. on it, and those represented um, the stable. Actually, it's probably been done by f- five hundred thousand people. Yeah, anyway,
1: you can find clips of this same sort of. Uh, thing on YouTube, yeah, done by lots of different people, and
0: I I enjoy watching it because it's really a, an excellent demonstration. So each of these these mousetrap atoms with its two uh, ping pong balls represents these unstable atoms, right? And as and the the uh, ping
1: pong balls represent the ejected neutrons,
0: exactly, exactly. And so uh, somebody else will drop a ping pong ball inside a small hole in the box. Uh, representing the neutron in this case that is bombarding these these atoms, and as soon as it hits one mouse trap and sets it off, the ping pong balls from that one fly in other directions, thereby setting off the other mouse traps and It all happens in a very, very short period of time. It takes almost no time at all for this thing for all the the mouse traps to release their part of, uh, ping pong balls
1: yeah now in in the case of a nuclear weapon, these reactions are happening in billionths of a second, yeah so now let's get to the actual elements that are used in nuclear weaponry. Okay. So one of them is an isotope of uranium, uranium 235.
0: Yeah, that's a very complex atom.
1: Yeah, it's got 92 protons, right? Mm-hmm. So but it's got 143 neutrons. And the thing about this is that it will accept a neutron. If it, if you bombard uranium 235, it very easily will accept that neutron.
0: Yeah, it'll um, take that neutron.
1: Yeah, and then yeah. it It makes the uranium unstable and then it will split apart like I just said and you will get that energy and those uh, uh, other neutrons released. So that the the problem with this – many problems with this. One of the issues that the people who first started working on nuclear weapons technology encountered was that first of all, they they weren't sure which elements were going to react Mm -hmm. this way because not all of them do. So finding the right elements was tricky. The other part is that uranium-235 is relatively rare compared to other isotopes of uranium. Yeah, that's right. So when you find naturally occurring uranium, the re- uranium-235 in that deposit is going to be relatively sparse. And for a nuclear weapon to work, you need about 90 percent uranium-235. Mm-hmm. So that you have the right amount of material to perpetuate this chain reaction. Otherwise, your your uh, atoms that are unstable may be too far apart from each other for that chain reaction to really take off.
0: Uh, note to all the nuclear physicists who are writing, who have paused the podcast and wrote in to tell us that there are other types of fuel that can be used for nuclear weapons. Yes, we know that. Yeah. However, we're using we're starting here.
1: Yeah, starting with uranium because that's where that's where that's where the scientists started. Yes. Uh, plutonium also used, as well as their hydrogen bombs that we'll talk about in a little yep. bit. But yep. even hydrogen bombs use uranium and plutonium. Um, it's just that they're they're using a different mechanism. They're using fusion as opposed to fission. So Uranium-235, uh, you have to actually refine your, your, your uranium. Wow, I can't talk today. But yes, you must well, take. It's not easy to say. Take your the, uranium. Yeah, your uranium, yeah. Uh, toy boat. Anyway, you have to take this uranium. <laughs> there we go. That works. And refine it so that you have a higher percentage of uranium-235, which is what you hear about when you, when you hear about these, these nations like Iran, uh, with their nuclear program. Mm -hmm. You hear about are they making uranium for power facilities or are they trying to make weaponized uranium?
0: This is uh, talking about
1: the enrichment process. Yes. So if you are enriching – if you're creating uranium so that you've got a a section of uranium that is 90 percent uranium – 235. That's indicative of a weapon. Mm -hmm. That's not, you don't need that kind of concentration for a nuclear power facility. So that's one of those things that, that inspectors try to determine when they go and look at a nuclear power facility to make sure that the uranium being produced is not weapons grade uranium. Right. So anyway, uh, that, that's the basis. That's the basic science behind the fission part of uh, nuclear weapons. And we'll get into fusion in a second. So, how did this all come about? Well, first we have to look at a fellow named Einstein. Mm-hmm. Now, Einstein came up with that famous equation E equals mc squared.
0: The theory of relativity.
1: Which states that energy is equal to mass times the speed of light squared, mm-hmm. the constant of the speed of light, through a vacuum, as it turns out. So that means that you take the, you take an, a, a unit of mass, mm-hmm. you multiply it by the square of the speed of light. You know, speed of light squared, rather. Right. And and then that's how much energy you get from that mass. Mm-hmm. So this tells us that a tiny little bit of mass could equate to an enormous amount of energy because you're multiplying that, that unit of mass against a huge number.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Well, that starts leading people to think, well, if this is true then there should be some way to tap into the stuff that's around us and get at huge amounts of energy. And you had a lot of really, really smart people working on this. And most of them were probably, at least initially, working on this as a way of finding a new energy source. Right. Not necessarily a weapon. However, World War II really helped push the the the, uh, the research towards finding a way of using this in a military application as opposed to to just a, a power generation uh, uh, alternative. Mm-hmm. So then we go up to the 1930s. You've got a fellow named Enrico Fermi. Mm-hmm. And, uh, he's I had a report
0: the... on him in grade
1: school. Oh, yeah? Mm-hmm. He's the one who discovered that if you were to uh, shoot neutrons at atoms, you could sometimes form new elements. And, uh, they were including ones that just did not show up on the periodic table at all. Mm -hmm. So most of these are, are atoms that are so unstable that, you know, they almost immediately decay. Right. But, uh, he discovered that. And then a a few years later, a pair of German scientists, Otto Hahn and Fritz Strassmann discovered that by bombarding uranium with neutrons that they could create, cause the uranium atoms to split. So they're the ones who actually connected the concept of fission with shooting neutrons at an isotope. Mm -hmm. And uh, it actually created a radioactive barium isotope once they did that. And that's how they discovered, oh, you know, this is what happens if you do this. Then you have a couple of other – there are so many famous names that we could mention that worked on this. But uh, Niels Bohr and John Wheeler started to theorize that if you were to create a fission reaction within enough of this material, you could – cause a chain reaction. And if you were to contain this in some way, you could have a, a, a controlled nuclear reaction, which would generate huge amounts of energy. Uh, now, a controlled nuclear reaction could allow you to have uh, uh, power, or a controlled nuclear reaction that then results in an uncontrolled explosion is a weapon. It's a bomb.
0: You know, I'm, I'm sort of reminded of our, our discussion of quantum computing, which also works with atoms. Um, But the thing is that figuring out the uh, predictability, if you happen to listen to that podcast, uh, of where the particle will go and in what direction um, is not always possible. That's one of the things that makes quantum cryptography so useful. But yeah, in this case, um, it's kind of scary because if you imagine that this this reaction is going to unleash a large amount of power or maybe it won't (laughs) – you know yeah. that that's a, that can be a little scary because you don't know for sure exactly what's going to happen when you do this is which is why um you know it, they started doing experiments like uh you know Columbia University in 1940 um up in New York they were starting to mess around with this to see if they could make it work University
1: um, of Chicago squash court
0: yes yes now that's funny because of uh, <laughs> underground yeah. underneath a uh, famous uh, stag field there at the University of Chicago um they were uh Enrico Fermi finally got it to work yep. in a controlled situation Mid-way chain reaction yeah um so you know again uh what what if it weren't controlled that might have been a little scary but uh you know he got it to to uh to do what they thought and this this was important because um again this is 1940 they realized that this could be a, a seriously potent weapon yeah uh, that they could be building so um they realized that if they could harness this and do this can, in a controlled way you know, then they could turn it to their advantage.
1: Um, around the same time that uh, work was being done on uranium uh, and, and nuclear fission, scientists over at the University of California at Berkeley, uh, back in 1941, discovered uh, a new element, Element 94. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they thought that this could also work as a potential fuel for nuclear chain reactions. And this element they named plutonium. Mm hmm. And. Named
0: name for the dog?
1: Yes, it was named for the dog. <laughs> the, uh, it took, it took a, it was named for the, the, the Roman god. Yes. But, uh, yeah, it was, That's uh, a, a year later they had actually cr- produced enough plutonium to finally do some experiments on it because it was not something that was easily found, mm-hmm. which I guess we should all be thankful for. Um, and they, they figured out that plutonium also would undergo fission when bombarded by neutrons. Mm-hmm.
0: You know, uh, we should talk about the criticality of uh, about the of the, the atoms themselves. Sure. Because the thing is, um, say say you have your your crate of mousetraps and ping pong balls, you have to make sure that nothing is going to set it off before you mean to set it off.
1: Yeah, you don't want to have something jostle that that system and have it all go off prematurely and of course with a nuclear bomb this is truly important because of the the just the enormous amount of damage that it could it could uh, uh it could cause mm-hmm. so yeah so there's there's a couple different concepts here there's a concept called critical mass mm-hmm. which is the minimum amount of mass necessary for you to have a sustained nuclear fission reaction yes and then there's the subcritical mass, which is where you've got lower than that amount. And ideally what you want is to have lower than that amount up until the point where you actually want to detonate the bomb. Yes. Because that's going to keep it as safe as you can you can get it. So there were a lot of uh, challenges in trying to find a way to create a bomb where you had – the material set up as subcritical until the moment of detonation where it would convert to a critical mass Mm -hmm. so that that nuclear reaction would remain sustained within it. Otherwise your bomb would still be dangerous. It would still emit radiation. It would still emit a lot of energy. It just wouldn't cause as much damage as it was designed to do.
0: Right now, now critical mass is, as Jonathan said, the minimum amount needed to, to achieve the fission reaction. Now, uh, Ideally, for a for a bomb condition, if you're you're trying to do this, um, you would want the fuel to be in a supercritical mass, which basically means there's more than enough necessary <clears throat> yes. to to achieve the fission reaction. Um, uh, you know, because in, in this case, uh, it, it just applies in plenty. You want to make sure that it's going to happen.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, you don't want to you don't want to have it where. Through some weird set of circumstances, just some in- improbable but possible outcome that the bomb the that the, a, a smaller percentage of the reactions takes place than you had anticipated because that means that the effect is going to be smaller than you had anticipated mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and if you're going to be building something as nasty and dangerous as a nuclear weapon, you kind of want it to be <laughs> effective,
0: yes, yeah, the point is again to to operate it when. It's going to achieve the desired effect, and not before. And
1: which is really, I mean, this is where it gets hard to talk about this because the desired effect is so mind-numbingly awful. Yeah, I'm, I'm trying to, to speak of it in a in a, cli- in a clinical yes. sense. Um, yeah, it's it's a little rough. So there there are two different ways to create a supercritical mass within a fission-based bomb. Yes. Uh, and actually, both of these ways were used in the first two nuclear weapons ever actually used in battle
0: um one of the things that i I think of is uh again in a, in a clinical sense, but it's, uh, it's still kind of amusing to me as in reading about this um the the nuclear weapons that were detonated in Japan to uh or I should say over Japan to um end the second world war were really. Uh, I mean, it seems like, well, they, they did what they were intended to do, but, uh, they were really more like lab experiments packed in a case and, yeah. and, and created. So, I mean, now things are, are pretty standardized, but, uh, the two, those two weapons were very different right. in the way they did things, and, uh, and really they, they, the scientists weren't 100% certain that they were going to do what they thought they were going to do.
1: Yeah, and those two oh, weapons were called, going to do were called Little Boy and Fat Man. Yes. And Little Boy was the one that was dropped on Hiroshima on August 6th, 1945, and Fat Man was dropped over Nagasaki on August 9th. So these two used two different methods to initiate this supercritical mass and begin the nuclear fission process. Right. Little Boy used what was what called a bullet. Mm-hmm. It's a uh, it, you you in order to start this whole reaction you have to have something that's going to create neutrons. Mm-hmm. And in this case it it actually was a bullet although not you know
0: in the sense of a gun the gun that fired it was not the kind of gun that we would think of necessarily.
1: Right this was a a, a so you take take a ball of uranium 235. Mm-hmm. All right and then you take a small amount of that 235 out as a bullet it's a projectile. Mm-hmm it's placed at one end of a long tube it's got explosives behind it so when the explosives go off it propels the bullet down the tube until it uh impacts the sphere of uranium 235 at the other end and uh so the here's how it here's what happens the explosives fire the bullet goes down the barrel the bullet hits the sphere and it hits a neutron generator like i said you have to have neutrons to start this fission process right so just dropping uranium 235 that's not that's not going to cause a huge explosion mm-hmm. uh, but by creating the, these neutrons with this neutron generator uh it ends up starting off that that series of reactions within the bomb right so once those neutrons are generated and it starts hitting the uranium 235 The the fission reaction begins. The individual atoms of uranium-235 start to split, and they, too, start to eject neutrons, Mm -hmm. which causes more uranium-235 to split. And that reaction uh, continues, and the energy builds up until the bomb explodes. Mm -hmm. So that was the little boy version. By the way, in case you're wondering how little little boy was, uh, it was – it, well, it was able to drop a bomb that was equivalent to 14.5 kilotons of TNT.
0: Mm-hmm. Oh, wait, no, um, yeah, 14.5 kilotons. Yes. Yeah. Sorry. And, and, I, yeah. I misread my own notes. Yeah.
1: So, yeah, so little is a, as a relative term. Mm-hmm. And then we have Fat Man. Now, Fat Man used an implosion triggered bomb. Yes. So this is, this is different from the bullet method. And, what happens here is you've got uh, a sphere of the nuclear fuel, so in this case again uranium two thirty five, and then you have uh, a plutonium two thirty nine core inside that, and 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 surrounding the two thirty nine core are some explosives. Mm-hmm. So what happens is in this bomb the the sequence of events is the explosives around the plutonium uh, fires, and that creates a shock wave. The shock wave ends up compressing that plutonium two thirty nine, and that compression is what triggers the fission reaction within the plutonium. That uh, reaction becomes a chain reaction again, and the energies build up, and then the bomb explodes. Mm-hmm. So, uh, the the whole way that this works is that it it creates and then directs that shock wave from the initial explosion to generate that first. Uh, fission reaction that becomes the chain reaction so yeah a little different from the bullet method uh, and it was it was interesting you know both of these methods were being worked on at the same time during the manhattan project mm-hmm. and uh actually the implosion triggered bomb as i understand it was the very first method that was tested it was the trinity bomb that mm-hmm. was tested um back in los alamos uh, which was not uh Prime real estate, if back in that time, because of all the nuclear testing they did. Right. Uh, in fact, back when they did that first nuclear bomb test, no one really knew what the result was going to be. Right. I mean, there's just no way of knowing. And uh, it turned out that several of the scientists who were observing the nuclear bomb test back in uh, Los Alamos uh, temporarily lost their vision because the the explosion was so bright that it damaged their eyes. But they were able to recover their vision after a while. But people didn't know how powerful this was going to be, how intense the energy was going to be. And so they were viewing it with their naked eye. Mm -hmm. And uh, that turned out to to be a mistake.
0: Right. And, of course, uh, an explosion Mm -hmm. of that magnitude also spreads radioactive material over a very large uh, physical space. So, uh you know, we were talking about that a few minutes ago uh when there is a nuclear explosion like this, if there is um you know it spreads nuclear material out over an an area, basically, you could think of it in roughly if, if you're taking weather out of the picture, yeah, um you know you would have a, a huge circular ish area um, over which this material is spread now, of course, if the wind is blowing. Uh, you know, or, or you know, the temperatures, right? The, the material can drift along with the wind. Mm-hmm. It can, uh, you know, get into water supplies. It can, you know, cover, it can move quite a bit. Um, and, you know, the, the effects, the physical effects, of course, um, you know, it, there's, there can be a lot more than, uh, just, uh, vision problems. I mean, there's, there's, there have cancers been attributed to it um there have been cancers attributed to it um and many many other physical conditions um related to that so it's not just the people who are um atomized if you will by the the bomb right as they are they happen to be in close enough proximity that it can have long lasting effects on on many many other people and can make the area radioactive for many many years to come
1: yeah these these uh elements that are experiencing radioactive decay they can be in this state for hundreds of years, yeah. depending on the materials. The, um, yeah, the essential, if you are, if you are at ground zero of a nuclear explosion. Yeah. Which uh, is,
0: which is essentially right at the center of the explosion, yeah, the, if you will.
1: The, yeah, the, the, the location of the detonation, essentially. Um, the, the thing that would kill you would mm-hmm. be the heat. Yes. The heat would be so intense that you would, You would be essentially vaporized. Mm -hmm. Um, But following the heat is the pressure that's created from the shock wave of the explosion. Yes. And so let's say that you're far enough out where you're not going to be vaporized by that heat. That pressure could be enough to knock over the building you're in totally – it could crush you. Yes. So you have that to look forward to. Then you've got, like like Chris was saying, the radiation and the radioactive fallout. So – you can think of that as sort of a bullseye target, right? Like the very center of that target is where the heat is going to be the most intense. Mm-hmm. Just outside of that is the general area where the pressure from the shock wave is going to be intense enough to be deadly. Mm-hmm. Uh, just outside of that is the radiation where the radiation could be strong enough where you are go- you could suffer severe radiation sickness, mm-hmm. uh just from the exposure from that, sure. and then the radioactive fallout could affect the largest area.
0: Right, right.
1: And like you were saying, the weather can end up carrying particles that have mm-hmm. uh, this radioactivity to them and contaminate other areas miles and miles away from the site of the bombing.
0: Mm-hmm. It can affect uh, living cells, uh, you know, preventing them from behaving normally. I mean, they it can cause birth defects in in future generations. Um, so this is this is very very uh, serious stuff. Of course, um, now later after the, what, one of the things that they realized after uh, using these weapons was these these fission bombs work very well. Obviously, they're very effective, but uh, they began thinking that uh, perhaps fusion would be a more effective or create a more effective weapon, and that's the the course they began following.
1: Right, and they. In some cases, they first started looking at fusion. Back in 1943, there was a physicist by the name of Edward Teller, and he came up with an idea called boosting, Mm -hmm. and this is a process where you create a fusion reaction in order to generate neutrons, and those neutrons then go on to create a fission reaction. Yes. So So it's really both. Yeah, it's a hybrid, really. Really? Uh, now, like we said, fusion is where you've got the two atoms that combine together to form a heavier single atom. And in that process, it gives off quite a bit of energy. Uh, and you can use different kinds of atoms to do this, but typically in a thermonuclear weapon, we're talking about hydrogen. Mm-hmm. And hydrogen has different isotopes, right? There's uh, uh, deuterium mm-hmm. and tritium. Yes. And, uh, this is all talk, uh, you know, normally a hydrogen atom, uh, just has the one proton. Yes. But if you add the, if you start adding neutrons, then you get de- de- uh, deuterium and tritium. And deuterium is stable. If you have a deuterium atom, it's stable. It's not going to decay. Uh, you can actually create water with deuterium, uh, but it will, uh, in, in enough, um, in large enough amounts, deuterium is toxic. Mm hmm. So it's not something you want to have around you. Uh, Tritium is that heavy water? Is that heavy? I you know what? I couldn't tell you.
0: All I remember about heavy water is uh from Batman, it the could, TV show. It, would, it and would. I'm pretty sure that's not very scientific.
1: But then you think you know it would make sense in a in a in a sense because deuterium Sorry. you've got the neutron added, which means that the actual atom itself is heavier, which means any molecule created out of that atom that would take the place of the normal isotope or the 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 natural state of that atom would be in turn heavier. Mm-hmm. Sorry, you, you can keep talking. This
0: is one of those times when uh, it, it, something didn't click to me until we were actually talking about it. Yeah, so that, I'll, I'll look see if I can find something. And you're...
1: I'm not a nuclear physicist, so I honestly can't answer all those questions off the top of my head. But tritium is not uh, stable; it will it will decay rel- relatively quickly. So it's a bit of a challenge. But what what is it, Chris? You yes, so you're right.
0: D two O. Deuterium, it's, it's water made with deuterium.
1: There you go. And so trying to create a, a fusion bomb is a little bit uh, tricky because tritium is one of those uh, elements that is typically used in these, but it is not, it's not not—it's not easy to store and it's uh, it got a very short half-life. So, so if you have this problem with s- storage and how do you keep tritium stable so that you can... Have a fusion reaction in order to start off the fission that's going to ultimately lead to this destructive force, yes, uh, scientists came up with a, a fairly creative solution. Uh, first, they created a lithium deuterate, which is a solid compound and it does not have the problem of undergoing radioactive decay at uh, room temperatures at normal temperatures or even you know normal operating temperatures of a nuclear bomb until you detonate it. And then, with the tritium problem, they began to rely upon a reaction, a fission reaction, which will produce tritium from lithium. So first they have to induce a fission reaction with the lithium, and then the lithium in turn will produce tritium, and then you've got the, uh, chance, you've got the, the, the right elements in place to have the fusion reaction. So you have fission, to fusion, to fission again, to boom. Yes. It's a little complicated, right? And uh, that fission reaction with lithium, it also gives off a lot of x-rays. And the x-rays are actually what allow uh, – well, the x-rays end up increasing the temperature within the bomb. Right. All right? And those that increased temperature and the pressures that are associated with it are the, that's the energy that goes into the system that allows fusion to happen because this is one of the tricky things about fusion. you got to pour energy into the system in order to fuse two atoms together. Right, right. And
0: the, the components of the bomb are separated by casings that prevent accidental or, or, or maybe premature detonation. So that, that initial uh, explosion uh, and causing the x-rays basically uh, causes the uh, deterioration uh, of those materials and allows the bomb to continue detonating.
1: Yeah. So let's, it's, it's, it's a little complicated to talk about this without an illustration. Yes. But the way this fusion bomb would work is that you've got an uh, implosion fission bomb. Uh, with a cylinder casing of uranium-238, which is acting as a tamper. A tamper is the thing that is controlling this reaction so that you get as much energy involved before it actually unleashes that energy. Mm-hmm. Um, the within, Inside that, that tamper of uranium-238 is the lithium deuteride, and there's also a hollow rod of plutonium-239 in the very center of all that. And then... Separating this, this cylinder of a tamper, of the, the uranium-238, from the implosion bomb is the shield of uranium-238 and some plastic foam. Mm-hmm. And uh, this is what, uh, once you start detonating it, the sequence of events is that the fission bomb, so that first explosion, goes off. And this generates the really intense x-rays, which increase the temperature and the pressure within the, the bomb. Mm-hmm. Uh, the shield, that uranium-238 shield with the foam, it actually is what keeps that, contains that uh, that explosion so that it does not prematurely detonate the rest of the fuel. But the heat causes the tamper, that cylinder of uranium-238, to start to expand and it begins to burn away. It starts to put more pressure on the lithium deuterate, which is uh, squeezed so hard that it causes shock waves that initiate fission within the plutonium rod. So here's you've got your second fission reaction. Yes. So you've got the first fission reaction, which uh, causes the shock wave. Ultimately, that begins a, a second fission reaction within the plutonium rod. Mm-hmm. Now that reaction starts to give off radiation. Some it begins to uh, to exer- uh, expel neutrons, and it also gives off a lot of heat. So now you've got even more heat in addition to the heat that was generated by the X rays.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: The uh, neutrons go into the lithium deuterate, which then combine with the lithium, and that makes tritium. Mm -hmm. So now you've got this environment of incredibly high temperature, this incredible pressure, and it allows the tritium and deuterium and also deuterium-deuterium fusion reactions to occur. Mm -hmm. So you've got uh, tritium combining with deuterium and deuterium combining with itself – in these reactions, which produces even more heat, more radiation, more neutrons. Those neutrons from those fusion reactions induce a final fission reaction in the uranium two thirty eight pieces that are uh, making up that tamper and the the sh- the shield that surround the whole thing. Mm-hmm. Which of course creates even more radiation and heat, and then the bomb goes boom. Right. So you've got these the series of explosions going on in a fusion bomb. Several of which are fission, one of which is fusion. Uh, The reason for that, you may wonder, well, why do you need so many reactions to go on for a bomb to explode? Mm -hmm. Well, when we were talking about Little Boy. Yes. uh, The interesting thing to me about Little Boy is that it was an incredibly destructive weapon. Oh, yes. But only 1.5% of the material, the fissionable material within that bomb actually underwent fission. Right. 1.5%. 1.5%.
0: So it could have been even more destructive.
1: Yes, the energy it unleashed could have been orders of magnitude larger than it was. Yes. So a fusion one, a fusion bomb is is designed in part to try and create as efficient a series of explosions and, and reactions really, we shouldn't even say explosions, right, reactions right. within <laughs> the bomb. Um, as, po- as many as possible or as much of that material as possible so that when it does detonate, it unleashes the largest amount of energy it possibly can for the uh, the amount of payload that it has. Mm-hmm. Now, this also means that we have been able to reduce the size of the actual payloads. Yes. Because we can create just as an effective an explosion, but with a smaller amount of material as we could from several decades ago.
0: Mm-hmm yeah the, the weapons these days are far more reliable than than those early ones um and we've gone from dropping them from planes to uh, mounting them on cruise missiles and uh, ICBMs intercontinental ballistic missiles yeah um and of course uh you know these these weapons now uh, travel under their own power uh, at a certain point anyway and um you know the the ICBMs can they actually leave the atmosphere and reenter the atmosphere so yeah. they they can travel very very long distances that way um
1: and we know. we wouldn't really be able to to accomplish that if we hadn't moved to a fusion method where right. we could be so efficient with the way that we eliminate the existence of other people on the planet uh, I hate to put it that way, but you know, ultimately, even though we're talking about something that's really scientific, the application of this is absolutely horrifying. Yes, but uh, it's no way for really to get away from that. But the, uh, yeah, because if if we hadn't done that, if we hadn't come up with the fusion process, mm-hmm. then it would be much less efficient, and we might not have the option of putting something on a missile because uh, it would the payload could be too great for um for a missile to be. Uh, practical. Mm-hmm. Because at that point, you would have to build a missile that would be able to carry enough fuel so that it could propel both the missile itself and the payload to wherever it is you're going to send it. Mm-hmm. And it could just become a matter of scale. And and it just would not be, it would be possible, but not practical. Right. Uh, by making it way more efficient, we can now put it on top of lots of stuff, including, you know, not just missiles, but Weapons aboard submarines. I mean, it's yep. all sorts of stuff, right? Sure. So, terrifying um, in a way, but, uh, yeah, and we, we have, uh, we have Einstein to thank for it. So, yeah. next time you see that guy.
0: Well, um, one of the things that I wanted to mention too, and we don't have to get into it in great depth because we're, we're getting there as far as time goes, but, um, uh, is the testing of these, these weapons. Traditionally, um, of course, as Jonathan mentioned earlier, uh, in the very, very early days before they had been actually used, uh, scientists wanted to test them to, to find out if it was even possible to make, uh, the weapon of mass destruction that they envisioned to, to, uh, to see exactly what it would do, how well it would work. Um, so they did all this testing outside, um, and above ground now they've uh, a lot of in a lot of cases they've done well they've done tests pretty much in all sorts of forms I mean they still do them outside but uh, in a lot of cases now they uh, weapons engineers do this underground um, in an attempt to contain the reaction of course uh, although it uh, a nuclear reaction can produce such force that it can vaporize large amounts of rock so they have to be very careful where they do this um, uh, you know f- for a long time many governments around the world would use uh islands to uh to test their their weapons places that they felt were uh somewhat unoccupied um and uh for for example uh well, actually that inspired uh the Godzilla series yes. of movies um where they a, a lizard was irradiated uh on an island where It's
1: a great series of documentaries Yeah,
0: <laughs> documentaries where uh the 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 one the one lizard who was irradiated by this this nuclear explosion turns into Godzilla and not you know all of the other animals that happen to be living there um, he got just the right amount of dust apparently so um, they've tested weapons underwater um, you mm-hmm. know and in space but uh people are are gradually moving to computer testing um, which allows scientists to get a much better idea of how things might work without having to
1: actually blow something up
0: actually blow something up uh and create the uh environmental conditions um the the uh fallout and and reactions that would follow um and they've found that this can be actually beneficial uh, i was reading an article I, I believe it was in the washington post it was saying that uh uh computer modeling had allowed engineers to discover problems that uh they hadn't realized existed with the weapons system that they built um and uh, prevented it from becoming, you know, they re-engineered the weapons that were in existence because there was a possibility that it may not, uh, that it may cause problems and wouldn't be as stable. Um, and, uh, you know, it's it's interesting, but, of course, they've found out uh, through testing that that fallout can travel um, through air currents and, and water. And uh, I, I think that's one of the things that leads to um, a, a fear, That keeps people from using nuclear weapons more freely because people really understand now more than they did um, years ago that, you know, this is not something that should be done casually.
1: Yeah, there's also the fear, the hypothetical nuclear winter. Yes, which uh you know the
0: particulate matter from multiple explosions uh basically causing clouds above the earth,
1: right, which would block the sun's light from reaching the ground, thus killing off a lot of the plant life that depends upon sunlight, and then that in ends term, up that ends up killing off the species that all depend on plants, humans mm-hmm. being one of them, so it could end up being. In, a global extinction event. It could also be something where it just changes the climate globally, where mm-hmm. you know we actually do have a really harsh winter because the sun's light just isn't hitting the the surface and warming it the way it usually would. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. And and we see we see things that could point us into like suggest that that's true by, by things like like uh, volcanic eruptions where sure. a lot of matter is is ejected into the atmosphere mm-hmm. and it can affect uh local weather patterns now mm-hmm. when we're talking about a nuclear winter we're talking about something that would last longer than a you know just a a month or two so right. it's pretty it's a it's a it's a one of those doomsday scenarios
0: it's a sobering thought to be sure um and uh you know i it's one of the reasons I, i'm interested in this is you know, to see the flip side, you know, the idea that that nuclear energy can be used as a very efficient and clean source of power. Of course, we saw, uh, we we talked about the the Fukushima uh, reactor last year, right after it happened. Um, but that's not the same as an intentionally uh, intentionally using nuclear power to cause the destruction of many people. So, um, yeah, it's it's amazing to me personally that. Uh, a little tiny atom can be used to do these amazing things. Yeah. Whether they're you know, and I mean amazing Con- in the clinical construct- sense, good yeah. things, constructive and or destructive. destructive. Yeah. Uh, it's it, it's amazing.
1: It is amazing, and we'll probably. I think what we'll need to do is in a future podcast, we'll have to do a full episode just on the Manhattan Project, mm-hmm. because the if you look at a list of names of the people associated with it, if you've ever taken any any classes in physics. You're going to recognize a lot of those names. Yes, I mean the, the era that the Manhattan Project existed in was remarkable in the sense of it was it was an unprecedented era of scientific exploration and innovation. Mm-hmm. Um, one of those where you just it was phenomenal the amount of of uh, work and scientific discovery that went on at that time, mm-hmm. uh, and in no small part that was due to Things like World War, mm-hmm. you know, World War Two was definitely one of the reasons why that uh, those those advances were made at the pace they were. Mm-hmm. It's not the only reason. It was one of those things where a lot of stuff came together all at once and kind of created this environment. Anyway, that's for another podcast because this one's gone on long enough. If you guys have any suggestions for topics that Chris and I should talk about in the future, I welcome you to email us. Our address is techstuff at discovery.com or let us know on Facebook and Twitter. You can find us there with the handle TechStuffHSW. And Chris and I will talk to you again really soon.